You ready? All right. The, the, for the next four or five days, I'm going to talk about me, <laughs> which is my relationship with myself. And no other relationships can really work until I have a relationship with God, a relationship with the program, a relationship with myself, and then finally I can begin to have some some fairly healthy relationships with my husband, my sister, my brother, um, my children, you know. But I've got to know who I am. Um, I've got to know I've got a God. I've got to know about my home group. And then I get to start to recover um, for myself. And that's when things really begin to happen, when things really uh, take on a, a, just a whole new dimension. <clears throat> so anyhow, um, I first of all had to understand at a deep level that the Father within doeth the work. And within means God lives in me. And I believe that today. He's not out there. He's not um, in it. You know, he, is, he is, dwells within me. And um, that's just a comfort beyond anything I can even imagine. My journey is still in progress, but I like myself today. But I want you to know that I suffer from one of my main character defects is inappropriate behavior. Open mouth, insert foot is my logo. Um, I just do that. And I've, I've had that problem since I was a little child. When you're raised in an alcoholic home, you will do about anything to get attention. And it's kind of subconscious. I did never set out to be anything but a cute little kid, you know, and, and do my mother's will. But... There was no attention in an alcoholic home, so I just took on this thing with this inappropriate behavior. And I became loud and animated and bigger than life. And then when I couldn't get my mother's approval, I enhanced my stories, told, made myself bigger. You know, if it was five cents, I told her it was a dime. If I found a penny, I told her it was a dollar. If I, no matter what it was, I made it bigger, thinking that she would, I, I could get her attention mostly. And it didn't work. And so I started to do this outside the home with my friends. I became bigger than life and a storyteller, and a lot of people thought I was just the cutest thing they'd ever seen, and they loved me, and I had this whole little pastel of people that followed me even in my childhood. And then I had people who said, you know, you have a big mouth. Um, <clears throat> you're a blockhead, and uh, your children need to be seen and not heard. So there was this, the two sides. So um, it was working on the outside, but it wasn't working on the inside of my house. So I have this problem today where I still get myself in trouble um, because I say things inappropriately, and I did that about a month ago. So, I mean, I had to write a letter. I, it was somebody from the East Coast, and I had to write a letter and say my, I'm still a work in progress. My behavior was terribly inappropriate when I said this. I, you know, I was trying to be funny. I didn't realize that it could be offensive. And what I got back was, you are forgiven. I am like you, and thank you for reminding me to keep, uh, keep my, my, uh, my character defect in bay as well because she said I have been lax in that area. So, you know, she forgave me. And she says, thank you for giving me the opportunity to take a look at myself. So, you know, I'm not ashamed of who I am, and I'm really happy to be able to share things with you because I am a work in progress. So... Um, there's a movie, um, and oh, I'm so bad about movies. I see about two a year if I'm forced. And um, <laughs> but one of them, oh, Sabrina, Sabrina. Okay, she goes off to France and gets involved with photographers and their photographing models. And she meets a mentor along the way. And the mentor told her to write in a journal and said to her, "You will find yourself in a journal." Now, long before I saw the movie Sabrina. I started to write in a journal because Jean Coffin, 
who was really my hero in Alcoholics Anonymous. She was brassy and loud, and she had bracelets, and they jangled, and she wore jeans to work, you know, colored jeans. But she had this huge, big purse, bigger than that, and her cigarettes were always in the bottom. And, and she, had a, she was from West Texas, so she was, had that wonderful, um, there's, there's, there's yarn spinners, you know, the, uh, oh, the, we're losing that. Yeah, that wonderful, our, my generation and the, my children's generation, they don't know how to spin yarns, but those old people, they could spin yarns. They could tell a four-hour story about how they lit the, how they lit the, the, the logs in the, in the wood-burning stove, and, and you'd either be crying or laughing because they just had a way of telling stories. Well, Jean was like that, and I loved her, and I would have walked to the moon if Jean told me that that was my path to recovery. And Jean believed in writing in a journal. And she sponsored a lot of women and men in Dallas, and because she was Mama Jean, you know, she was just Mama Jean to everybody. But she had this wonderful way of, of, want, of without even flaunting herself, of making you spiritually want what she had. And she always made her girls write in a journal. She would say, if I'm going to sponsor you, you're going to write in a journal. And so I started writing in a journal because I wanted what Jean had. And one day I lied at work and I says I'm going to go to the dentist this afternoon uh, and, I, and I ended up going to, to where Jean worked and we had lunch together and we went in her office and I said to her you can read my journal any page I'm not a, you know this is between us and she looked at it and she burst into laughter only the way Jean Coffin could burst into laughter and I'm breaking her anonymity because she has, she has been gone for quite a number of years but she left her legacy in my soul and, and she just burst into laughter and I said well, what's so funny? And she says, there's not a feeling on this page. She says, you're writing this journal like if it's a little high school journal. You know, I went to the grocery store. I saw Tracy at the meeting tonight. I had mashed potatoes and gravy for dinner. I, you know, <laughs> it was just this. And, and she, she sat there and she wrote me a mock journal page. She says, if, if I was writing it, she says, I, I put on the top of the page, dear God, and I date it. And then um, she put down a high feeling and a low feeling. And so she says, she talked about her boyfriend. Um, she was in her 70s and she had her boyfriend. And anyhow, she says he made her mad that day, except Jean, when she'd cussed right in her letter to God. She said, God knows I cussed it. I don't have to. So she just, but Tom made her mad today. And because he did this, and then I reacted to him and I said that. And I don't like when I react to Tom. And then she says, my high feeling is on the way home, I got off the highway and I stopped at Brahms and got a double dip ice cream cone, which made everything okay. And so, um, so my challenge was to find myself in my journal and to be honest in there. First of all, I was writing in the journal thinking that if I died and George read it, that you know, I did, certainly wouldn't want him to read anything that was in my journal. And then I thought, shoot, what if we die together in the Bubba truck and, and my kids read my journal? I certainly don't want to be writing anything in there that you know, Stephen or, or the girls couldn't read. And so I was writing in my journal with the idea that if anything happened to me, then they read it, I wouldn't want them to know. And then I thought to myself, this is ridiculous because the whole idea of finding myself in writing in these pages was to be honest. So at some point in time, I don't know when it was, I began to write honestly about how I felt in my journal. And I truly began to find myself in the pages of my journal. Um, I found myself in uh, uh, other people's defects of character. And you see, instead of judging, uh, you know, what if, what if Joan and I were in a meeting and she did something that was just 
ridiculous. And instead of sitting there thinking to myself, well, Joan has 20 years in Al-Anon. I can't believe she's still behaving like that. Well, then my sponsor says, with there's one finger pointing at them, there's three pointing back at you, and then somebody else says, if you spot it, you got it. You know, <laughs> we hate all these little one-liners. So then all of a sudden I have to take a look at that behavior and I think to myself, well, I need to look at that rather than judge it. Is God showing me Joan's defective character so I can realize that I have it? Or I can make a decision about who I want to be or who I don't want to be. And most of the time that's what it is, is that we are out there not displaying our character defects to each other to be obnoxious, but but the people who are watching us in our character defects and our character assets are making decisions about who they want to be and who they don't want to be. And once I realized that it wasn't a judgment call, that you were neither right nor wrong, that I wasn't right or wrong, because I find all the time that you and I don't agree on the way that I think. I mean, I thought I had the only way, and, but I, find out, I found out this week I, am, I don't think the way my friend in Nevada thinks about a topic. And so um, it was come as a complete surprise to me because I, when I think something, I think you all think it that way too, but then I find out that you and I don't think the same and that I'm kind of... But what it is, it's an evaluation. It's a spiritual inside evaluation. So I can look at Joan and say, God, thank you for letting me see that about Joan because I can make a decision that I'd like to correct that defective character or, oh my God, that looked awful with Joan wearing it. I certainly don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to have that. So then I have this choice. But it's not about calling up somebody and saying, you should have seen the way Joan behaved in the meeting today. You know, it's about saying, thank you, God, for letting me see that. Because those are spiritual eyes. And I can either, I can either choose to be that way or choose to disregard it. But the fact that I spotted it, I got it, you know, and so that's the way that it is. So bad examples help me as well as good examples. So I praise the bad examples in my life and say, oh, thank you for being a jerk. <laughs> I get to see that I don't want to be a jerk. Thank you for, you know, especially I get to see people in airports. Oh, my goodness, the worst, the worst of the worst shows up in airports. People are restless, irritable, discontent. They think theirs is the only agenda, you know. And so I watch people act in airports, and I want you to know that if you go up to a, a, a ticket agent when, when they've had all kinds of cancellations and I, and I say to her, could I get you a glass of water? They're like, stunned. You know, but I want you to know I get on a plane and I get the seat I want. And I don't do it like that, but I think to myself, if I was, if I was being um, you know, one of God's kids and, and I was as busy as this woman's been, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody brought me a glass of water or even was concerned about the fact that I might be tired? And I'll say to them, I bet you are so tired of all this. You could just, I'll bet you can't wait till you get off work today. And just that somebody has acknowledged their predicament. They are so happy about that. And so I do that all the time. Um, I have, the sponsor I have now has this fetish about grocery carts in uh, supermarket parking lots. And, um, and I just hate that woman. Just every time I go into, and I have, I am blessed by having a neighborhood Walmart store one mile from my house. So I'm in there every day, and it's just wonderful. It's just a wonderful little store. I don't know if you all know about them. They're tiny little grocery stores that don't sell anything else but some groceries. And I'll get out there, and I always park my car kind of in the back for two reasons. 
I don't like it. I don't want it to be scratched. I always have the dog out there, and they said exercise is good. If you park far away, it gives you an opportunity to walk a half a block in and a half a block out. So I think, okay, that's a good way for me to exercise. So I always park my car way out there. Well, when you park your car way out there, the return slots for the shopping carts is not where I park my car. And so it's days when the wind is gusting and there's trash blowing all over the parking lot, and I'm thinking, I don't want to return this shopping cart to there. I'm going to just kill her next time I see her, you know. <laughs> but I think I hear her voice in there, return your shopping cart to the thing. So I do those little simple things. The other thing that I heard, you know, is to always, you know, the gal, I love Bonnie. Bonnie's my checker. We also have automated checkouts. So sometimes if I don't have a lot of produce, I'll use the automated checkout. But when you have to start punching in all the numbers or identifying your bananas, <laughs> I think that's way beyond my patient's level. And so I go to Bonnie. And, um, you know, we're on first name basis. And um, one day uh, we made a joke across there, and this lady looked at me because she didn't realize that I wasn't being that Bonnie and I had this little thing about marking the end of my groceries and the beginning of the other ladies, and we laughed. And she says, and this lady looked at me and she said, that was rude. And Bonnie says, no, she's my favorite customer, and we have a thing going. And so um, anyhow, yesterday or a couple of days ago, I was in there, and Bonnie was walking through one of the aisles, and, and I said to her, well, I can hug you today because we haven't got a cash register in the middle of us. And she was like stunned. And we just had this bear hug. And she says, today's my birthday. And I said, well, happy birthday. I said, today's my anniversary. So it was Monday. I said, today's my anniversary. And I mean, this is just my checker at the neighborhood Walmart grocery store. And we have this little thing going, all because I've been uh, conscious of the fact that she stands all day and I tell her I always tell her I appreciate you so much you know and then she'll say well I appreciate you too You're, I always look forward to when you come in the door and you know what it's a simple little thing but that's how I work my program I put the card away I don't cause any trouble in the store if I pick something up and I don't want it I put it back where I got it from I don't leave it in there this is another one of those little sponsor things she says if you pick up the ham and you don't want it you don't leave it in the toilet paper section and so we have to I have to do those things I can hear her voice just nagging me in my head you know if you're in the big store and you pick up the blue jeans and you don't want them, you don't leave them in the tide, you know. And so, um, and I used to do that kind of stuff all the time, you know. It's just, it was just the way I did life. Who cares? They have people to go around and put this stuff away. What big deal is it? And then I hear my sponsor's voice in my head said, I have to put the, I have to put the cart back. So, um, through my grief, I gained great wisdom. Who would have ever known that the gift of grief was going to be wisdom? But I have wisdom. I'm not intelligent. I'm not brilliant. But I have living skills today that I could not have gained any other way than to lose my child. And it's not that I wanted it that way, but it's one of the things that I am most grateful for is that the process of all that gave me great wisdom. And I have wisdom to share with other people based on experience, not that I've read a book by Emmett Fox or somebody else. I have great wisdom because I lived life, and it's my gift. It's the gift that I got back from that. So, um, And I found myself through the love of the people who entered in and out of my life. And there was a man in California that I, I related to so much when I was new in the program. His name was Bobby. He was an alcoholic, and he was a madman at the podium. But that man described my insanity. And there were several, those of us, 
those of us who are like me also listen to Bob. The ones who aren't like me go, that man's crazy. <laughs> and, but I heard him and he, he always would say, God puts people in your life when they're necessary and he takes them out when they're no longer useful. Our thing is, is we don't want to let anybody go. And so I have been allowing people to transition through my life and saying, oh, there you are. And then, bye, thanks. You know, I appreciate it. And some people have stayed forever. I walked into my group when I first went to Friendship three years ago and there was a tall, thin, blonde girl there and I looked at her, nothing special. She's just a, just a really a, a, a tall, thin, blonde girl in, in her early 40s. And when I walked in the room, there was something inside of me that just jumped for joy. And I went and hugged her and I says, I'm Beverly. And I says, I'm new to the group. And she says, well, she gave me her name. And um, anyhow, I kept hugging her and thinking we could have conversation. And it seemed like she was avoiding me. And I thought, well, maybe I'm mistaken here. Well, later on I found out that when I, when I found this gal, she was brand new in the program. And she says, you scared the, you scared the, you scared me. You know? and she said, I, I'm thinking, who is this aggressive woman? We are such good friends today. And we go over to Mama's Diner, Mama's Daughter's Diner, about once a month and have a breakfast together. And uh, we talked about it the other day. I said, you know, when I saw you, my little soul said, oh, there you are. And she said, you know what, I thought that too. And then she said, but I didn't realize that you weren't new. And then when I found out you had a lot of time, I was intimidated and everything else. But the fact is, I don't know how long we're going to stay in each other's lives, but I thoroughly enjoy her. There's no strings attached to the relationship. It's mutually rewarding. We laugh. It's not all program and dreary stuff. And um, I just adore her, you know. And um, and I have, I have people, um, I, I met a gal about a year ago, and I thought this... This friendship was going to work, and and we pursued it and did some things together. And there was this little thing inside of me that kept like, this isn't okay, this isn't okay, and I couldn't figure it out. And then I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, I think even though I have this much time and I have all this experience, I says I think there's a part of me that still will not let people in. And I said, this gal is kind of, you know, we're kind of working on a, putting a friendship together. And I said, I just won't let people in. And she says, well, let's kind of just keep an eye on this. Well, come to find out, something happened, and I got a little email from her, and um, it was very accusing. It was untrue. And I thought, oh, maybe this thing about intuitively knowing how to handle things that used to baffle us is the reason why I don't let everybody in. It might be the little warning signal that we're going to be friends for a while, but it's not. There's going to be something to be learned here, and that's what it was about this girl. And I thought that was the that was the barrier. I called my sponsor back, and I said, "You know what? It's not about me." I said, "It's the little warning of God inside of me that says, beware. <laughs> You're going to learn something here.'" <laughs> and I did, you know. And so I'm, I'm more open. To, to these things. This sponsor thing was a killer. I grieved in my backyard for six weeks during the summer. I didn't intend for this friendship to come to an end. And it was, a, it was oh my God, it was sad. I was so sad. And I thought, well, I learned a lot from her. I had her. She was my sponsor for nine years. She helped me through all of those beginning stages of, 
of trying to stay married to George and grieve my son's death at the same time and living with somebody who was grieving. And we were really a mess. We were, um, if you would have looked at us, you would have thought there's no way these two people are going to make it through this. And statistically, this is not conference approved, 75% of people who lose children statistically do not stay married. And we survived. So if you look at the statistics and they're saying 75% of people do not stay married when they lose a child, that means there's trouble in paradise. Big trouble in paradise. So we had trouble, but we stayed together. And I thought to myself, isn't that just an incredible deal? So um, <clears throat> anyhow, about more about me. I grow to know, my, I grow to know myself and, and take time, and I'm patient with myself. My growth is slow. Um, one of the things that I had to do that was very important to me is that I had to list five things about myself that I did not like before I came into the program. And of course you don't know what those things are, but five things about myself that I did not like before I came into the program. And then you have to also think to yourself, have you accepted yourself exactly the way you are right now? Hail damage? You know, the wrong color hair, a little cellulite, you know, uh, you would, all of us always seem to think we want bigger boobs and smaller rotundas and, you know, and all this stuff about us. We can't seem to look in the mirror at, without trying to fix, think, you know, if, if I, I'll cut the bangs, um, maybe I'll get littler glasses. When I'm 63, I'm going to get this, my turkey things fixed. And, you know, I just do all these things, you know. I have to look in the mirror and know that I am exactly the way God made me. And somebody told me early on, God didn't make junk. God didn't make junk. And I'm certainly not the first piece of junk that he made. He created me in the image and likeness of himself. And I'm not junk. And so I have to accept everything about me exactly the way it is right this minute, cannot look in the mirror um, in my birthday suit and try to rearrange parts, body parts. And um, so, five things you have done to change who and what you are. Um, five things you like about yourself. I am here to tell you that probably more than half the people sitting in this room cannot list five things that they like about themselves. But it's really important to be able to do that, and they can't be pretty insignificant. If you can, if you can sit down and list five things, make them pretty significant, you know, about who you are and what you like about yourself. Um, have you gained any inner peace and serenity yet? Are there even moments... When I first gained inner peace and serenity, it was such a new feeling, I thought I was depressed. And I called my sponsor and I says, I think I'm going through a severe depression. And I says, I think probably I need to see somebody because I maybe need some medication. I says, I, and she said to me, we talked about it a little bit, and she says, maybe you're just experiencing serenity. And I said, do you think? It was such a new feeling for me, I couldn't identify it. I was always in total chaos. And I kept an eye on it, and I thought, you know what? This could be what peace feels like. I don't know. If I'm depressed, they'll tell me. Somebody in your group will always tell you, I think you're depressed. But they didn't tell me that. You know, most of the time people would say, considering what you've been through, you are doing so well. 
You are so doing so well. So I think I have friends in my program that if I was depressed, they would have said, you know, maybe you need to seek out some professional help. Nobody ever said that. I was experiencing peace and serenity, and it was a big deal. I didn't know what it felt like. Do you acknowledge your intuitive voice? My sponsor that I just terminated relationship with used to say to me, Beverly, you have the strongest intuitive knower I have I've ever known in anybody. And she said, and on the other hand, you absolutely refuse to pay attention to it. <laughs> refuse. So I'm trying to listen to this little, still, small voice inside of me, which is always accurate and it's always leading me to my good, and, and I refuse to listen. So, um, and do you have a relationship with your higher power? When I was new in the program, I went to a convention. It was called the Irving Spring Conference, and um, there's, it's still going on now, but if all of you who are familiar with Joe and Charlie who do the big book studies, um, no, it wasn't him. It was, it was um, Joe R. from Louisiana. It was Joe R. Okay. After he finished with his talk, he used to bring these little cards and lay them up on the podium. And on one side of it was this prayer from Thomas Merton. And on the other side was a man walking. It was just a silhouette, man walking on the beach. And it, was, it said, Dear God, um, thank you for all that you have given me, all that you have taken away from me, and all that you have left me. And my husband and I, through his sponsor's direction, began praying at our mealtime about 15 years ago because um, Paul told George, he says, maybe if you two would just hold hands and pray over dinner, maybe you would find some peace. We've just struggled. We've, we are both self-willed, we, intense. Um, our idea is, I mean, we're, we're very much alike in many ways and we just keep butting heads. So we, we work constantly at our relationship, but not like... Constantly, but I mean, we're always trying to, you know, we're we're just we just we dearly love each other. We just butt heads, you know. And so Paul says, maybe you guys would just hold hands and pray. So we always end our prayer by saying, God, thank you for what you have given us, what you have taken away from us, and what you have left us. And I want you to know that after my son died, it was really hard for me to say that prayer because um, it was just really hard. And yet I never quit because what I meant, what, what really it was is that God did not take our son away from us. He received our son. And, um, but I, I had a hard time saying that. And um, now I say it because I realize, you know, that what God has taken away from me are my character defects and my fears and my anxieties. And he's replaced that with peace and serenity and an open heart and an ability to love beyond anything that I ever thought was possible. But anyhow, Joe's little poem, um, it's a Thomas Merton prayer. It's not conference approved. It says, I have no idea where I am going. I do not have sight of the seashore ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe this. I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. I hope that that desire is in everything I do. I hope I never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me to the, to the sandy shores, though I may know nothing of it at the time. Therefore, I will trust you always, for I may seem to be drifting and lost as a ship without a rudder, 
that in the moment of important decision I will not be afraid to take action because I know you will never leave me to face the future alone. By my prayers you will guide me to accept your holy will. And that was foreign to me when I began to read that prayer some 18 years ago. But today I understand that though I may seem to be lost and drifting as a ship without a rudder, in the moment of important decision I know God won't leave me to face the future alone because he has proven himself over and over and over again. So some of the other things about my personal growth, um, it was the sponsorship, the unconditional love, women's conferences, being able to be with other women, to see what your underwear looked like, to watch how you put on your makeup, to, you know, to talk about, the, take sex inventories in darkened dormitories at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and just laugh about stuff. And, and I would never let you know that I didn't know what that meant. I would pretend like I was just above you. <laughs> and, but I was listening. I was always listening. And I started, I said, I didn't know how to be a woman. I had this vision of a woman, but how did she get that way? Of course, I understand today it's not what you put on the outside, it is what happens on the inside, but let's face it, you know, what we do on the outside makes us feel a lot better as well, and I didn't know what to do with my outsides. I was bleaching my hair orange and doing some weird things, you know, to, you know, to change how I looked, but you had some real, you were just beautiful, beautiful women. And I wanted to be just like you. So I started to do what you did. And it was kind of, it was fun. You know, you showed me how to put on eye makeup. And you showed me how to use a pencil for my lip liner. And you told me about beautiful, expensive perfumes, that much to Mr. B's dismay. And uh, I even have a bottle in my to-go bag that I keep with me. And, um, you know, I just, I, I, you know, it's fun to be a woman. It's just, we have, there's, we can have little play clothes, like I have my play clothes on today, and you know it's just it's fun stuff. I I I was asked not to wear jeans for a while. They said, you know, let's see who you really are, because jeans were just jeans and a sweatshirt were my getup. But what I came to realize after I got in this program, and I was not allowed to wear jeans, I think for a year, and then I didn't wear them for a while <clears throat> to meetings. I could wear them at home, but not to meetings. I realized that that's just who I am. I am a denim girl. You know, I love denim. So I'm back in the jeans again. But, there, you know, I always, we can look absolutely stunning in a pair of blue jeans and a T-shirt, you know. And, and you put a little belt on and you wear a little makeup and a little foo-foo and stuff. And, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's, a, it's not about what's on the, but what they were trying to tell me is I was just kind of slouchy in the beginning in those jeans and I didn't care but now that I know who I am, jeans are like one-third of, of, of who I am. I mean, it's just, it's just me. Um, I had to come to believe I was a child of God. I had to forgive myself. I had to be open to hugs and being hugged in return, especially with the women, and I've already talked about that in the encouragement. And then this wearing a belt thing in bright colors was a whole new deal. I, was, I, I wore brown. And there's a gal in Dallas who said we were brown wrens when we got here. Well, this, month, this year and last year, brown was like a color, but, you know, I mean, it was like a style color. But, you know, if you wore it, it was because you wanted to. It's not because it represented how you feel, you know, just kind of dead inside and everything. And so I, I started to wear purple. And, and Mike, I have a lot of red now. Oh, my gosh, I have a lot of red. And, um, and I love to experiment with, with me. And I bought a jacket last week that's patchwork quilt, um, all different colors of um, velvet. 
squares in all different patterns. That is so beyond what anything I would have worn 20 years ago. I would have looked at that and been afraid you might see me. You know, I didn't want to be that noticed. And it's not about being noticed. I put on red and with this new color of hair I have, you know, red looks dazzling. You know, bright colors look wonderful when you have lighter hair. And they look wonderful when you have dark hair. But I don't think we want to stand out. It's more about not wanting to stand out, not wanting to be noticed, not wanting people to see, you know, to take notice of us. And so I have all this. A sponsor told me I had to wear a belt. Now, I don't know how this happened, but about a year and a half ago, I was standing like this and realized my waist disappeared. And I, I get, they said, Beverly, that's what's called middle age. And I thought, well, I'll be darned. So now I just had to buy bigger belts <laughs> to fit around the middle age. And... Um, <laughs> But how that happened is I wore this huge paisley brown tent dress to an outing on a Saturday night. I was, I was um, at a convention with a friend of mine, and it was right after um, Scott was diagnosed with, with the AIDS, and I had gone to Florida to check on him and be with him for a while. And a, and a friend of mine from California says, I'm going to be the Al-Anon speaker at the Florida State Convention. So she said, my husband's too sick to travel, and isn't that near where your son lives? I mean, all these coincidences. And so I end up being her, I went to see my kids for a week, and then Scott took me over to the hotel, and I spent four days with my friend. And I put on this paisley number. It was huge. I mean, it was this big, and it started at my neck. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And she... We ended up going out and we had dinner and, you know, it, they foo-fooed a lot for the speakers and stuff and I was just tailing along behind her. When we got to the room that night, she says, ditch the dress. Don't ever wear that dress in public again. And I was so hurt. And I says, why? She said, ditch the dress. And she says, if you must wear the dress, put a belt on it. She says, I saw you get dressed this morning. She said, you have a body women would die for, and there it is, hiding under that god-awful thing. <laughs> and besides being as big as this, it had a huge ruffle of even more fabric on the bottom, and it was just a little below the knees. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was bad. Anyhow, she said, I want you to wear a belt. And she said, I want you to wear a belt all the time. So I like, you know, that meant, well, you can't wear sweats because you can't wear a belt. And you know what that did was it, I didn't want to wear the belt because I didn't, I didn't want to cause any attention to myself. You know, even my, my feminine features. And so she made me wear a belt. And now, I, oh, five years ago, I bought something that you absolutely couldn't wear a belt with. And I thought, oh, I hope she doesn't see me. So I called her on the phone and I said, could I be done with that belt thing? I think I know who I am <laughs> So I did a workshop in her area a couple of years ago and they had a garage sale and they went around and collected all these belts and they come in the room with this huge box, huge box. And I mean, they must have spent 20 bucks on the wrapping paper and they says, we'd like to present you with a little gift before you do your, your workshop as a self-esteem. So I'm thinking, gee, many Christmas, this is awesome. <laughs> I unwrap it all. And there was about 250 belts in that box. <laughs> 
all just left and I put the box there and I want you to know what is it they say about your garbage is somebody else's treasures? I want you to know that all but about 10 of those belts disappeared by the end of the workshop. I said, please ladies, help yourselves. And they went, ooh, I'll take that one. That'll go with this, that'll go with that. And all these belts disappeared. <laughs> it was fun. Um, another thing I didn't know was that I had green eyes. I was way into my 40s before I looked in the mirror one day and realized I had green eyes. I had no clue. I had hazel written on my driver's license. And do you know why that was on my driver's license? Because my mother said I had hazel eyes. The fact of the matter is, is I have green eyes. And when, I, when, you're not, when your soul is dead and you're not looking into the windows of your soul, you have no idea what color your eyes are. And I was way, I, I came in the program at 40, I was probably 48 uh, when, I, when I realized how, what color my eyes were. And so um, now, you know, and there I am putting on mascara and eyeliner and, and shadow and brows and all that stuff, and I do not look in my eyes. And so now today I know um, in order to look in my own eyes and to be able to look in your eyes when I'm talking to you, I have to be vulnerable. It is so easy to look on top of, alongside of, and how many people do you talk to in and out of the program that they do not look you in the eyes? And I'm here to tell you that if you're going to have a conversation with me, chances are I'm going to be looking at you right in the eyes, and that's going to make some of you really uncomfortable, and your eyes are going to dart everywhere but at me. But it's one of the things that I practice and I try to do because, first of all, I had a mind that while you were talking, I was trying to think of an answer, and a lot of times I cut you off and interrupted, and I still am I'm working on that feverishly today to, to listen, to listen, to listen, to listen. So when I'm looking in your eyes and I'm saying, listen and just look, pay attention to what they're saying, I'm paying attention. And then um, <clears throat> the other thing is, is that I'm giving you the opportunity to be vulnerable back. I had to ask for help. Self-sufficient, self-will run riot, you know, me had to learn how to say, would you help me? I can't do this by myself. But my first indication that I was unwilling to ask for help was that I, every meeting I went to, somebody would say, use your tools, use your tools, use your tools, use your tools. What are your tools? Do you know what your tools are? Well, you maybe knew what tools were, but I didn't know what tools were, and I was not going to ask. <laughs> because how foolish would it be if I went up to you and I said, Tracy, what are the tools? You might laugh or say, oh, don't tell me you've been in the program a year and you don't know what the tools are. Oh, I know better than that. You're not going to do that to me, but I didn't know what the tools were. So one day, Vestas came to our group to do the steps, and she had a little canvas bag, and she carries it in, and it's got on there, it's applique tool bag. It says Vestas tool bag. And I thought, whoa, thank you, God. I'm going to know what the tools are. And so Vesta puts all this stuff out on the table before she starts her her step study, a telephone, a pen, a tablet, an ODAP book, an Allen on 12 and 12, um, a telephone, a candle. Um, she had a little um, tape with some meditation music on it. Um, I don't know what all. She had this, all this stuff, and I'm thinking to myself, so where are the tools? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it goes, oh, those are the tools. And then I went, oh my God, I've been using the tools. She had a little sign that says, call your sponsor, you know, and, and meetings, go to meetings. She had these little signs up, and I thought, oh my God, I have been using the tools. 
I was using the tools. So ask for help. We will not think you're funny. We will not laugh at you. We might become amused or remember where we came from, but we won't laugh at you. We'll laugh with you. And so ask for help. Um, I realized that I had to learn how to enjoy who I was. You know, I am a free spirit. I am as wacky as the day is. I'm spontaneous. Um, I like having fun. And I, you know, everybody's always been keeping the lid on me. And, you know, I can drive Mr. B absolutely crazy because I don't, I keep popping out of the mold. And it just, you know, it heals. I don't think that was very funny. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Um, and today, you know, I'm not making fun at somebody. I'm enjoying my life. And I enjoy my life. And if you don't think that you can't enjoy life, if you have a golden retriever and you are not enjoying life, then you need a lot more meetings, a lot more meetings, because um, Logan has taught me how to enjoy my life. I mean, she is everything that I read about, and when she lays down on her back, her front lip folds over her <laughs> nose, and all her teeth are exposed. And if that doesn't make you laugh on the blackest day, I don't. You don't have a sense of humor. There's no hope for you. Um, I gained self-confidence. When I was asked to chair my very first meeting, I want you to know I perspired all the, way down to my, all the way down to my waist. I was soaked. And when I used to get up and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer, I was so nervous my eyes would twitch and I couldn't get them open. That I, I'd squint and then the tears would run down or my voice would crack. I was so afraid. Of, uh, I was the one who didn't want to be seen in the back of a room, and I know that's hard to believe today, but the fact is, is that what you see today is a woman that God has created that has always been there and was afraid to come out. And, and, and I, learned, I learned about gaining self-confidence through walking through airports, through going to meetings with people I didn't know. When I was asked initially to do the steps in Dallas, which is a, you know, one of our big deals that we do in Dallas, to be a step speaker, um, I gained confidence to drive the interstate. I was 40-some-odd years old before I drove on my first interstate. I was frantic. When I was a young girl, we lived in California for three months while George went to a school, and I accidentally went on an on-ramp to an interstate, and I froze. I was terrified. And so here's a woman now who gets in a car. He was sick one year when we had a job a couple of years back in South Carolina. I want you to know that I drove to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, almost completely by myself. A couple of weeks ago, I did a workshop in San Angelo, and I took a girl with me that I sponsor, and she and I went off, and all I knew is that eventually I-20 was going to San Angelo. Somehow there would be a sign, and I just went. Next thing I knew, I was in front of their house. And I think to myself, who is that woman? You know, who is this woman? I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago with my grandchildren, which is where I love to go more than anything in the world. Steve lives up in Seattle now. He was here for like 15 or 17 years in Houston. And... Um, and the girls, I was had to take them to school, and one school is about 20 miles away, and the other one is just two blocks away, but we take the longest one first and then take the other one. And so they're squabbling in the back seat, and I opened up the sunroof and I said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And there was like, these little girls just <laughs> stopped arguing about whatever, you know, it's like, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And they stopped arguing, and I said, look, the sky is blue, the leaves are turning gold and, and bronze. I said, look at all this beauty out there. That's all God out there. Look, girls. I said, 
look, it's beautiful out there today. Let's not fight. And they're looking outside, and then, and then the, younger, the older one said, well, happy, she calls me happy, happy, what was that stuff you wiped off the car windows today? And I says, well, that was due. Oh, D-O, and I said, no, D-E-W. Well, that's not the way you spell do, and I said, yeah, the water on the windows is do, D-E-W. Well, what is D-O? And I says, well, that's when you do your chores and, and do your schoolwork, and, and that's D-O. And I says, but then there's D-U-E. And I said, that's when the bills are due, and you have to, or you're due to send something in the mail, or you're, you're due in, a, in, in school at a certain time. That's D-U-E. So now we're looking at the day that the Lord had made and we're spelling do, do, and do, and, and I'm quizzing them on it. And by the time we dropped the younger one off to school, they were quiet and happy and, and, and let her out. And, and they knew the definitions between the three do's. And I looked in the rearview mirror and I said, who is that woman? <laughs> and, and I thought, where did she come from? She came from you, piece by piece. Woman and man in this room gave me a piece of you, and that is what you created. Was this woman that God intended me to do and I, uh, to be and do? And I am so delighted with myself. I can't hardly believe that I was even the woman that walked in here 22 years ago. I mean, it's so different. So um, I have had to learn how to find my creative gifts, and my creative gifts were my knitting and my needlework and um, cross-stitch, and uh, crochet, and, and cruel, and photography. And, and this photography is just unbelievable. You know, I didn't know that I could do this, but I am I'm just astound myself. Um, and, and I have these wonderful lenses, and I don't get paid for any of my work, but what I do is take pictures of all my niece's little girls, and and you know anything that comes along, I just I have a hundred rolls of film in my refrigerator at any given moment. Um, Mr. B didn't hear that, um, <laughs> but did he? No. <laughs> I'll just whip out a couple of rolls of film and we just flash off. I raked leaves yesterday and our day before yesterday, huge pile of leaves in the backyard, and my nie- and I was tending one of my niece's little babies. And um, when she came to pick the baby up, um, the baby was happy and the two-year-old was just happy and they call me happy too now. And um, she went and took him outside and she put that little six-month-old baby right in the pie. I mean, the leaves were this high. Dropped that baby right down in the leaves and she was into leaves up here and I said, oh my God, this is a photo opportunity. And she's eating the leaves and she's got them stuck in her hair. And I went and got the film and we took two rolls of film, just like that. I mean, just like that. And I says, I don't have time to get these developed. Normally I'll even develop them and I just give them away. And I think to myself, you know, I think, oh, I'm so gifted and, and, you know, why can't I sell this? And I think someday when I need the money, I'll sell my work. You know, God will give me an opportunity. But for right now, he just wants me to share my blessings. And that's what I do. And that's what we're all supposed to do. We're supposed to look down inside, find what we have that's our creative talents, whether it's because you were a banker, you could be the treasurer, no matter what it is, we are so creative. Find your creative talent and give it away because you can't keep it unless you share it. So for right now, I give all my photography away. I write thank you notes on my, on my cards and, and I get to where I'm going and somebody will say, oh my God, that picture, I didn't realize you took that picture. I had it framed. It's hanging in my kitchen. I had it framed. It's hanging in my bathroom. So you may not think you're looking at the next Ansel Adams, but you are. (laughs) 
<clears throat> and, and my work is hanging in almost as many homes as his is, except it was all for free. <laughs> so I was taught to take the program home, particularly the, tra- the, the traditions, and um, to uh, set aside an appropriate time for my prayer and meditation to watch what I ate. I don't know about you, but I was raised, I raised myself through active alcoholism on Salem cigarettes and, and um, Baby Ruth candy bars. And die, not Diet Coke, because that would be ridiculous to have a Diet Coke and a candy bar. So I thought, what the heck? Coke, candy bar, cigarettes. And then I was always wondering why I was jumpy, you know. <laughs> I was skinny, though. I mean, I don't know how that happened. I was mighty skinny when I got in here. But the fact is, is I am learning to watch my diet. And I'm not here to promote diets or anything else. I'm just, in taking care of myself, I try to watch what goes down the chute. And... Um, uh, I have a little problem from time to time. I know that, it, you know, if I really took a look at it, that probably um, I could use a 12-step program with food. I mean, it's it's definitely controls. I, I control emotions with what I put in my mouth. I'm very aware of it today. I just opt to try to do this. I have to remember that food is fuel. It's not a comfort. You know, it's not, you know, I, 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 one day I watched myself. Stephen and his girlfriend were having a fight in the back bedroom. And all of a sudden, I reached for the Christmas candy. And I thought, oh, my God, I put that connection together, you know, about the comfort and everything. So I watch what I eat today. And and when I get upset, I try not to, you know, just try to monitor that. I exercise regularly. And a lot of my exercise has to do with what we do for a living. But I take care of my own house and mow my own lawn. And I was complaining to my sponsor this summer. I says, I think I'm the only 61-year-old woman in my entire subdivision who is still mowing her own lawn. And she said, Beverly, you may be the only 61-year-old woman in your neighborhood capable of pushing the lawnmower. So she says, I want you to go in and tell God thank you for this energetic, healthy body that can go out there and mow a quarter acre of grass. And so I do that. And I think, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. And I just sing my little praises to God because my body is healthy and I can mow my own yard. Um, My son used to buy me flowers. And when he died, one of the greatest griefs that I had was that I would never get flowers because Mr. B, I have to look for the way Mr. B tells me he loves me, which is that he keeps keeps everything running and fixed and he makes sure I'm safe and he does all that stuff, but he's not much on flowers and presents. And and I, I used to think that that was the measuring stick. And then when Scott died, I thought, oh, I'll never have another flower. And then I was told, you could buy your own. And see, Scott used to not buy flowers. He always picked yours and gave them to me. And um, I, so I wanted you to—I just wanted you to know that if he was in your garden, thank you very much because I appreciated all the flowers that I got from you through him. And um, anyhow, Tuesday is the day that they bring fresh flowers into Walmart in my area. I don't know what day, but in my little corner grocery store at Walmart. In fact, all of our huge supermarkets. Tuesday is the day that they deliver all the fresh flowers. I always make a point of going to the grocery store on Tuesday later in the afternoon and I buy myself a little $3.88 bouquet of flowers and put them in a vase on my kitchen table. And you know what? When they're that fresh, they last over a week a lot of times. And I always have fresh flowers. If you come to my house, you will always find some fresh flowers on my kitchen table because I am responsible for my own happiness. And flowers bring me happiness. And so I can go to the store and buy them. You do not have to give them to me in order to make me happy. 
Um, the other thing I love to do is when my boys were little, I used to pay them a quarter to rub my feet. Now I find out that on every, court, on every corner there are nail salons, and if you pay them $20, they will rub your feet for a whole hour. And um, I was, you know, I just love to do that. And I was, in, I was in Oregon at the end of September, and I had on shoes that didn't have toes. Now, I know right now most of those women thought I was crazy because they, they dress like lumberjacks up there, flannel and everything clothes everywhere and here I am I've got my open-toed red shoes on and I'm sitting in the john and I don't know you'd see you must be careful because people are watching you everywhere we are always we could always be the best example of this program anybody's going to read and I didn't know that while I was sitting on the pot the lady in the stall next to me that was sitting on the pot next to me was looking at me she was looking at my feet and when I got out, I washed my hands and went out into the, into the big waiting area out there and I got visiting with some people that I knew. And all of a sudden, this little woman, she was very small and very thin, she came up and she went, Oh my God, you're the lady with the feet. <laughs> she says, I have never seen such beautiful feet in all my life. And I thought, there is nothing beautiful about my feet. But I had a pedicure. And I had bright red polish on there, and it was freshly done, you know. And she had never seen a woman with a pedicure. And I said, you know what, there's nail salons everywhere. And I says, for a very small amount of money, you can have beautiful feet too. She says, I didn't know that. And so you beware, ladies, you just never can tell. But that was the most incredible thing, you know, because I looked down and I take this for granted and there's some woman in Oregon who had never seen a woman with a pedicure. And see, I was the little woman who walked into the dormitory at my first woman to woman, and I had never seen women with eyeshadow and perfume and, and lace underwear and pretty pajamas. See, we never know how the newcomer is going to look at us or somebody who's hurting is going to see us or what we're going to say that's going to take somebody into a whole new experience of recovery. So watch your feet. <laughs> And um, <clears throat> let's see, I found out that I liked music. And do you know what? I also found out about a month ago that Dish has music. I thought Dish only had CNN because that's, I don't know how I knew that. I guess that's because that's Mr. B's button. But I found out all the way, way far away from home, I walked into some lady's house and had coffee and the music was playing. It was absolutely glorious. And I said, that is really beautiful music. And she says, oh, it's just on my satellite. And here she had music coming out of her television. Well, I want you to know he's lost his clicker. <laughs> I have control of the clicker. <laughs> And there's country music and new age music and classical music and instrumental and adult. I mean, you can have any kind of music you like. If you don't know what kind of music you like, turn it on and just keep pressing the buttons. They do, you know. <laughs> just keep pressing the buttons until you find what you like. And I was introduced to the things that I liked. Somebody took me many years ago to, a, um, to the uh, Mort Meyerson music, and I got to hear a symphony. And I loved it. And I thought classical music, that was for old people. And I found out I loved classical music. And then I was introduced to Kitaro and, and, and just, I mean, I found out, somebody looked through my CDs and they go, it would be hard to identify your choice of music by looking through your CDs, because I like everything, you know, but I didn't know that. I mean, I just thought I liked Bill Haley and the Comets and the Beach Boys. That was my, that was the extent of what I knew. And here come to find out, I love I love music. I love all kinds of music. Um, let's see. 
The other thing I'm going to tell you is that I love myself so much today, I go for a well woman checkup every single July. That's my birthday. My birthday's in July, and I give myself a present of going for my mammogram and my well woman checkup. And, um, you know, that was something I'd go four or five years without, you know, going to the doctor because, first of all, it was, you know, it was very unpleasant. And it, and it cost, you know, a copay. And I didn't think I was worth it. But I'm here to tell you that my birthday comes along, and in May I make my appointment for, Jan for July so I can have my wool woman checkup and my mammogram. And, um, and, and I go to the dentist and get my teeth cleaned, and I wash my face every night before I go to bed. And I put on a little bit of cream, nothing fancy, just a little bit of cream, and, um, and keep my, you know, these are the things, this is the way I tell myself that I love me, is to take care of myself. You know, this is the only this is the only outfit I'm going to get. You know, and, and if I don't take care of it, and see, I have this idea that I'm I am the one of the we are entering into this new generation of women. This is the Beverly Burnett theory on this. My grandmother and my mother died before their 60th birthday, and I think that we, and particularly those of us who are in recovery, have the great opportunity to not only living into our 80s and 90s, but having useful, healthy, happy lives. And the only way that we can assure that is to take care of some of the basic, the basic needs that our bodies have. Because, I mean, I've lived the first 20 years I was at home. The second 20 years I read, raised my children. The third 20 years I've worked with Mr. B. And I've got another 20 years. I just don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I am so excited about it. I just know God has another 20-year plan for me. And I can't wait to find out what it is. You know, Georgia O'Keeffe was an old lady when she started her career and. And, um, and, you know, I don't know, what, I don't know what I have in store, but what I know is if I take some simple steps towards my own personal recovery, that maybe I have a crack at another 20 years of happy life. And, you know, I haven't had enough yet. 22 years out of 61 is not enough happy life. And even the first beginning of it, till you get a hang of this program, it's not enough. I mean, it's only really been in the last seven years that I've had this life that's peaceful inside of me, and I like who I am, and I, I recognize all of my abilities. I want more. I want more. I don't want to quit now. I don't want to die like my mom when she was 58 or my grandmother when she was in her, I think, 55 or 56. You know, I want to have this chance. God's given me this opportunity for spiritual health, and I, and I can help along by having some physical health along with that. So that's about me. Does anybody need to go to the potty? Does anybody need a little teeny-weeny little break? Huh? How about a five-minute stretch break? Okay. It's ten minutes to. We will stretch until five minutes to.